Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Joe Francis Penn. And in this episode, I'm talking to Karen Espley about her transformative trip to Antarctica. We discuss why the corporate life makes us crave escape, the fears and challenges that Karen tackled on her trip, and how travel helps us face the bigger questions of life, and importantly, push our comfort zone further than we thought possible. This is something I've been thinking a lot about as we still live in pandemic times. Our lives have shrunk down in so many ways, and so our comfort zones have reduced as well. We eat the same food and our routines have solidified as most of us stay close to home. And the thought of going further away induces fear in even people who are used to travelling a lot. And yes, I include myself in that. It might be a while until we are back out in the world again, but perhaps we can start pushing our comfort zones closer to home and break out of our regular routines in little ways. As ever, you can see pictures and read the transcript and leave a comment on the show notes at booksandtravel.page forward slash listen. Just choose the episode from the list or you can tweet me at the creative pen with a double N. I hope you enjoy the interview with Karen today. Karen Espley is an author, speaker, and businesswoman. Her latest book is The Impulsive Explorer, one businesswoman's accidental journey of self-discovery on an expedition to the Antarctic. So welcome, Karen. Hello, Joe. Thank you so much for having me on today. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. Oh, no, it is such an interesting topic. So I wanted to start because you spent many years in the corporate world, as I did, 13 years as an IT consultant. And, and I was reading your book and thinking, yeah, what is it about the corporate life that makes so many of us crave adventure and escape? Yeah, it was a really interesting question, actually. I was pondering that one. For me, I think it's, it's a number of things, but I think is certainly when you get to a certain seniority, it's just unrelenting pressure. So it doesn't matter how much you give, they still want more from you. So it's just that endless treadmill of, of them wanting more, giving you less to do it. And whilst the jobs, yeah, there are, you know, I had some really interesting jobs, but they are still routine. And it's the never endingness of it, I think. You know, there's endless meetings, that sort of daily commute into the office that we all used to have to do, and knowing that you're not indispensable. So, and you also don't really have a voice. So for me, it's just that sort of, there's no end to it. You rarely get praised, or if you do, you sort of grasp it like a jewel. So I think it's just, that relentlessness that you think, well, I was, I was saved by the Antarctic, but it's just you don't often have time to think, is there is there another way? What, what might I do differently? But I think that's probably, for me, that sort of, you, you said you did it for 13 years, I did it for 15, 16 years. It's just, it wears mm. you down, I think, after a while. You go, there must be something else, surely. 
Yes, it's funny you say relentless. And I, I used to put doing uh, put in IT systems. So it would be this rollout and then this rollout and then exactly the same thing, like over and over again and these different companies and different countries. And what got me was this sort of thing like, yeah, they're just going to overwrite this again in a couple of years with some other system and everything I do disappears. And so how can I just keep doing that? And, and so I decided to write books because they have some longevity at least, but... <laughs> Yeah, that relentless idea. Well, so let's talk about your escape then. So what drew you to Antarctica and what was that trip specifically about? Because you can't generally you can't just pop to Antarctica. (laughs) No, I was really, really lucky. So I was working for Standard Life Healthcare and um, unbeknownst to me, Standard Life uh, HQ up in Edinburgh. Uh, had spon- was sponsoring this environmental trip down to a Russian base in the Antarctic. They'd had a- Robert Swan, who was the first man to ever walk to the North and South Pole, had recreated uh, Scott's footsteps to the South Pole and had got bitten by the environmental bug whilst doing so. And he became a public speaker as part of his way of raising money for funds to raise environmental issues. And he'd obviously done a talk to Standard Life And they'd been so impressed with him that they sponsored this four-year mission. And as part of that mission, two people from Standard Life would go every year down to the base to see what was going on and support the activities. And I literally came into work one day and there on my chair was an A4 uh, flyer uh, sort of announcing this trip and looking, asking for people to go through the application process. And that was it. I can't give you any more explanation. I saw that and I knew I had to go. It was just, there was no fourth, there was no forethought. I hadn't thought, you know, one day I must go to the Antarctic. How am I going to do it? It was completely impulsive, hence the name of, hence the name of my book. So Mm. Uh, the idea was that we were going to sail across Drake's Passage from, which is down the, the very pointy bit of South America, sail across Drake's Passage and spend uh, two or three weeks on the Russian base talking to the team who were there, sponsored by Robert Swan's team, doing some research. I did some research for the Water Research Council and just experiencing it and then bringing your message back. So in theory, we were supposed to come back to the UK and then do a tour of different Standard Life offices and explain what we'd seen and the impact on the environment and top tips and lessons learned. So that was really how it all came about by complete accident. But but it's interesting because I feel like Antarctica is one of those places like I I don't really like extreme cold. <laughs> and I feel like, yeah, I like, love the pictures of Antarctica. It's incredibly, it's stunningly beautiful and, and all of that. But it does seem like a kind of a scary place. So when you saw that flyer and you were like, yeah, I want to do that. Did you have any initial fears that you uh, that made you wonder if this was the right trip or or what did you face before you even went? To be honest, I, I do some of these things just literally on impulse and I don't really think through the consequences of, of what might um, transpire afterwards. But sort of just to assure you, when we went in, in February, January, February time, it was summer down in the Antarctic, so relatively, relatively warm. So although the weather could change really quickly from beautiful sunshine to howling gales, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was bitterly cold. I mean, the Russians were just wandering around in shirt sleeves because they were used to Siberia. But for me, my biggest fear was this sailing across Drake's Passage, actually. So whilst I had 
done quite a lot. I did a lot of dinghy sailing when I was younger and in my 20s when I lived in Bournemouth and I'd been on some big yachts, I'd done Cow's Week and all sorts of things. The thought of the Drake's Passage is the thing that throws terror into a lot of people's hearts because it's the, the confluence of the Pacific and the um, uh, Atlantic Ocean. So big waves, big storms, shocking weather of Cape of Good, is the Cape of Good Hope, isn't it? So shocking storms. So I was actually really frightened of four four to five days sailing across uh, Drake's Passage. That was my biggest, biggest fear of all. And then having done a, I thought I better go and try this out. Uh, so I signed up for a race across the channel from Southport, Southport um, mm. Southampton across to France and unfortunately happened to pick the day when there were gale force storms out in the channel. And I ended up being strapped into my bunk with a bucket as I vomited my way copiously across the channel. Uh, so I really was quite frightened by the experience of having knowing I was going to have to do like four four hour shifts in possibly big winds massive seas in the dark being cold being wet that was my biggest fear I think of everything that I was worried about was that Mm, and did it turn out to be that no uh luckily for me anyway the ship which was uh, the yacht which was an x round the world yacht race yacht didn't get down to Ushuaia in time so we ended up going on a very small cruise ship which was a uh, an ex russian research ship so it was very small so there were only about 60 60 guests in total on the ship but even that had problems we set off and got as far as cape of good hope when suddenly the engines failed the propellers just wouldn't turn properly so we had to totter our way back to Ushuaia and you know that was my next massive fear was that actually we weren't going to be able to get to the Antarctic Mm. literally the engineer flew in at the 11th hour and managed to fix propellers before the entire trip was cancelled so it was all fraught with fraught with great anxiety before we even set foot across the uh the Drake's Passage Oh, how interesting! I should just say it's it's Cape Horn uh, off off Australia. Of yes. Yeah. Sorry. No, I know what I you always mean. Get them wrong. <laughs> no, I should know, shouldn't I? <laughs> oh well, no, it's difficult. They they both start with Cape, obviously. But it's funny you said that. I had a friend who was going to go on one of these Antarctic trips, and their boat got cancelled. And I mean, as you say, the weather down there is pretty violent, so it, the they do get cancelled more often than not. But I also I also feel like these fears we have sometimes the things we're afraid of are, are not the things that happen, and then other things happen that we hadn't even considered. So were there any other sort of difficulties that you had when you were there that you weren't expecting? Well, close quarter living is always challenging. I was actually very worried before we left because I read everybody else's biography. So a lot of them were done lots of mountain walking, were very outdoorsy sorts and you know very hale and hearty and had done lots of outdoor stuff. And and I'm a walker, but certainly not a serious one to the degree that the rest of the team were. So I was really worried about letting people down with my lack of experience. But that was, a, as you say, a completely unfounded fear, as it turns out. So for me, it's like in the middle of nowhere. And there were eight of us in a very small metal hut with four four women we were sleeping in one very small room and four men sleeping in, uh, in another very small room. So there's no escape. There was literally this metal hut with these two rooms and the lounge, as we call it, which is just a, a space with a few 
chairs in it. And you've got to get on with people because you can't really escape. There's nowhere, to, there's nowhere to go. So for me, I had a big challenge. There was somebody I I took against, uh, probably not their fault, more about my own, my own issues rather than theirs. Um, so it was trying to keep a lid on that because we have to live together. You know, there is no, there was nowhere to go. So you have to find a way through it. And I think we both found our way by keeping out of each other's way during the day as much as possible. So, yeah, it's just it's really interesting. You have to learn to get on with people in those sorts of situations. Wow. You must have learned a lot about what we ended up doing with lockdown living. I mean, it's this sort of quarantine. I had COVID and me and my husband, you know, we couldn't even leave the house. And I know we're in the house and there's only two of us, but I still really struggled. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't, you know, because we were, you know, we were lucky. We could go out and there was plenty, plenty of things to do. So I was doing this research for the Water Research Council. So I could at least get out and about and we weren't on top of each other sort of 24 hours a day, which we would have been had it been winter. So, yes, we, we could escape from each other to a certain degree. And there were enough other people around and about to water down any angst that we may have had with each other. So what were some of the highlights of the trip and some of the things that stick in your mind even many years later? Oh, my goodness. Honestly, there were so many. So I think... The first one was actually the the ship arriving in the Antarctic. We saw our first icebergs and we literally stopped for the evening in amongst these icebergs. So it's just staggeringly beautiful. You know, the the blue of the icebergs is, is just impossible to describe them. And then they took us out on Zodiacs and we sort of cruising in amongst the icebergs. And one of the stories I talk about in the, in the, book is he cut the engine and there was this fizzing sound and the only way I can get people to recreate it is to open a can of coke and put that can of coke to your ear and that noise of the bubbles just fizzing to the surface was air that was trapped in ice that was melting as it hit the surface it was 2000 years old I mean it just blew my mind Mm. so that was that was amazing and because we'd gone on the cruise ship, we got to see some of the really pretty parts of the Antarctic. So we went down what's called Kodak Alley, which is actually the Le Maire Channel. And again, that was just staggering. Again, you can't understand the scale of the place until you take photographs. There was, you know, there was another small ship where we were at the, at the same time. And you have to take the picture with the shipping because you don't understand how enormous this place is without that scale. Mm. So, yeah, be, I'm very excited to land on the actual Antarctic. So I have uh, an Antarctic stamp in my passport and we were really lucky when we were there to see an iceberg carve. So it sort of shot off the side of the glacier into the sea, all very dramatic. So that was amazing. And then for me, really, I just loved being in the Antarctic. I loved the remoteness of it all. I loved the simplicity of life. I loved that I was doing something really useful for the Water Research Council. And I loved not being able to be back in touch with home so I could completely disconnect and just completely live in the present so it was marvellous from that perspective and it's interesting because of course we were saying at the beginning about how the corporate world kind of grinds you down and then as you say you see these icebergs and the perspective of that your life is tiny 
And I find insignificance comforting. The fact that my lifespan is a flicker of light, a brief light, and it makes me want to experience more rather than be concerned that my life is so small. But I imagine seeing that perspective was just the opposite of the corporate world. Well, exactly. I mean, there is that freedom. Yeah. And for me, the fact that I was doing that research for the Water Research Council, I was doing it in my own time, but I was doing a really good job of it and, you know, enjoying it. And there wasn't that pressure was just so refreshing. And that was kind of the, the first inkling that maybe corporate life possibly wasn't going to be my long term future because I could start to see there might be another way to live my life and that that might be OK. And then I just wanted to come back on that. You said this was a Russian base. So presumably some of the people there were Russians. Did you have sort of interesting cultural clashes there? I mean, was the food all Russian? Was that interesting? Yes, the Russians were very interesting. So it, it sort of went from, you know, they just all stood and it felt quite menacing. As we arrived um, at the base, they just all stood on the shore watching us and then took our stuff up to the hut. And they seemed at first to be very dour and very isolating. They didn't seem to be terribly friendly. And then it really dawned on us after being there at some time when the, there was a Chilean base next door to us on the shore. And then four, four miles away, there was a Uruguayan base and we visited both of those bases and, and the contrast in living conditions was just so marked. You know, the Uruguayan base had hot and cold running water. There was comfortable sitting areas. There was decent food. And the Chilean base even had a church. It had a sports centre. It had, you know, it had everything going for it. Whereas the Russians are desperately poor mm. and had nothing. So the food was beyond awful I can't tell you how to, it, honestly it was seriously you couldn't even tell what it was most days it was just unremitting in its awfulness but as time went by we spent one evening up at the hut of the the Ryzen team who were the team being paid for by uh, Robert Swan's um, organization you know and they'd been out and they'd fished for us so we had some fresh fish and one of the chaps had carved us little penguins that he painted for each of us and they lived in this metal hut that had nothing they had used um cassette tape the, the tape from the cassettes to make swags and tails to to pimp up their their hut but they they literally had nothing and they had come from obviously come from russia to earn you know peanuts peanuts a day just so that they could feed their families back home because with perestroika the, their livelihoods had been destroyed and they were really really well qualified highly educated people but this was how they were making a living and they were just delightful so once they'd warmed up and once we realized that they weren't being standoffish but they had no money so they couldn't reciprocate the hospitality of the others Mm. Um, so it wasn't that they were being antisocial, that they didn't come to the parties that we went to. They didn't have anything to reciprocate back in return. So they kept to themselves. It was it was heartbreaking. And they were just such lovely people once you got past that reserve. 
And that's interesting too, because again, we have so many cultural stereotypes in our mind, don't we? And as British people, we're, we have a pretty uh, cold exterior, I think, to some people. They think we're quite standoffish. And I can imagine that being difficult at first. But as you say, people in every culture, once you get past the initial stereotype, you can find things in common, despite, I guess, which country you're in or where you're from. Well, exactly. And I think that was one of my big learnings, actually, from the, the whole episode from Bronco, who was our, our project leader, through to the Russians and, and other people, is that you can, you know, appearances are deceiving. And you really do need to dig past the exterior to get to the point where you go, well, actually, my conceptions of these people, all my ideas of what they are and who they are, are completely wrong. So so that was a big, big lesson for me was just to not judge quite so quickly people, but to, to let me know them before I make my judgments. And did you want to go back? I mean, obviously, you had, you were there on a scientific trip, and uh, but did, is it left a sort of resonance with you? And have you been dreaming of going back to to ice in any way, or or did it encompass Antarctica for you? Oh no, I wanted to go back. I would quite happily have spent all summer there. So the the whole idea of what Robert's um, mission was in One Step Beyond was that uh, as part of the 2041 treaty uh, is all the bases need to clear up their rubbish. And that was part of what that Ryzen team was doing was collecting all the the detritus and scrap metal and rubbish and bring it down to the beach for eventual removal to back to um, South America for dealing with. And they had been planning the year after or two within two years to take a group of 40 uh, students from around the world and take them down to film this being removed and I had been penciled in as going down as the deputy expedition leader I was Mm. very excited about that but unfortunately we had one of our one of the world recessions and the sponsorship all dried up. So it, I mean, it did eventually happen, but it it happened at a later stage and, and life had moved on by then. No, interesting. And then, of course, the subtitle of the book mentions self-discovery and you hinted at uh, a change because of the trip. So what did change for you and, and why do you think travel enables us to face these bigger questions? Well, As I mentioned, when I was doing that research for the Water Research Council, it made me realise that I I probably could earn a living not in the corporate environment. So it showed me another way that I could live my life. I I mean, I'd just always done the traditional thing that had been expected of me. I'd gone to university, I'd gotten a job, I started clawing my way up the corporate ladder. And to be honest, I, I didn't know any different. So that really opened my eyes to a longing for the other part of me which is the less conventional part to go actually I I do want to do something different I don't want to be this person who just claws their way out and becomes a stressed out hideous alcoholic by the time they're 45 because it's the only way to cope with work and I had been saving money so I have always been very sensible so I had been saving up against the day that I might just might decide to do something different so it just happily coincided with my return from the Antarctic that my my FOF I won't repeat what it stands for but it stands for um, off fund which enabled me to be able to take a year off work well not a year off work to give up work and know that 
all my bills would be paid for 12 months. So I didn't have to panic myself into going back into full-time work. So the sort of the stars aligned for me with that trip. And yes, you're absolutely right. I, I just find travel when it's that challenging and difficult. And it happened to me when I went to Ghana and traveled around West Africa and, and to a degree when I did had my midlife crisis, when I camper banned my way around Australia and New Zealand, that distance from your day-to-day life gives you breathing space and gives you perspective and seeing different ways of, of lives being led, A, makes you appreciate what you've got quite substantially, but also does give you that breathing space for your brain just to go, oh, okay, let's think about this from a, a slightly different perspective. So I think that's what travel does for me anyway. It just gives my brain that space to look at things from different angles. Yeah, and I always feel like when we go away, you know, when, when you're in your house, there's things happening and there's just normal life happening. And when you make an effort to go somewhere else, it doesn't have to be Antarctica. It can just be like I went to Bristol, a nearby town on, mm. on Friday. And just even getting away from your normal life for a period of time, as you say, gives you that perspective. And you can think about things that you might not think about when you're at home. Oh, I couldn't agree more, and, and and I really need to. I really need to start doing that. I've been, I've become a bit of a recluse over the last eighteen months with COVID and stuff. So, I'm feeling very staid and very locked in uh, mentally. So, I absolutely need to get out and feel the fresh air and be in a different place. So, it's really important to have that distance. And for me, it's going to be a caravan in uh, in Dorset in a couple of weeks' time, where I shall just roam the hills and. Uh, <laughs> Let yeah. let my brain breathe again. Oh, no, that's good. And it's interesting you say that because I have also felt like we're we're both people who've lived in different places and traveled a lot. And I have felt my comfort zone has shrunk, shrunk down with with COVID, as you say, than not speaking another language or hearing another language or finding I can't read a sign or find a toilet or just even the basic things of being in another culture. I feel even a little bit afraid of because I haven't done it for so long and even flying and all of this stuff. And I I feel a sort of desperation to start pushing my comfort zone out by degrees. And as you say, it will start with small trips and then hopefully we will get back out into the world. But that comfort zone, obviously your comfort zone expanded massively when you went to Antarctica, but now it's shrunk back again, which I think is good to realise that that can happen and that we then have to start actively pushing it again. No, definitely. And just a really odd example is I, I moved here from London six years ago. And going back up to London terrifies me now, whereas in the old days, I would just happily wander around London two o'clock in the morning. I knew where I was with all the trains and the tubes and there. But it, it is amazing how quickly your courage can atrophy in places that you were previously comfortable. So you're absolutely right. I need to get back out there and start challenging myself again. And uh, for people listening too, as we said, it doesn't have to be a massive trip. You can start with little trips and just keep pushing it out. Because I, I fear that if we don't start pushing the boundaries, it will shrink even further and we'll never go anywhere again. <laughs> I know. Goodness, we can't have that. Yeah. So for me, my big thing at the moment is planes. I, I have absolutely no desire to get on an airplane at the moment. And that's going to that's going to scupper things. I'm going to have to find some slow, some slow, slow ships out of this place to go elsewhere now, I think. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, well, for most people, we don't have to necessarily fly, but my husband's a New Zealander, so we're heading over as soon as we can. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's like, okay, is it, you can't, we have looked at getting a boat to New Zealand, but it's a blooming long time. And like you, I'm not particularly happy about um, travel no. sickness. <laughs> But anyway, I did want to ask you about your past. I mean, you grew up in across different countries. I, I was reading in your book, Nigeria, Northern Ireland, Malta and Hong Kong, and you've obviously traveled lots. And so I did wonder, and you mentioned they're just London. And so where is home to you? And do you find home wherever you are? Or do you think people with wanderlust can ever find home? Well, again, it's interesting. So on one level, I don't feel I have an anchor. Because we've never been, when we were, when I was growing up, we were never anywhere for a particular long period of time. Bizarrely, I still consider myself to be a northerner, despite the fact I haven't lived up north for centuries. If anywhere I would call home, it's probably Hong Kong, because I was there the longest and there for the most significant time period. I was there from the age of 12 to 18. And so I met my most significant friends there and had my most significant part of my life. But whilst I have been back to Hong Kong, gosh, back in 2012, I think I went en route down to New Zealand, funny enough, I don't have a desire to go back there. For me, my friends are probably my family. So I've got friends all over the world uh, as a consequence of going to school in Hong Kong and, and friends who I met uh, in, in London who have gone back home to New Zealand or South Africa. So for me, home is more about my friends, I think, these days than any particular physical location. But yeah, and it's an interesting question about wanderlust, because interestingly, I never particularly felt like I have wanderlust because I did so much traveling when I was younger. And so I don't necessarily have that urge to go and discover new places, although I do have a bucket list of places I really would like to go and visit, having said that. So yeah, I'm but I think what I'm more attracted to is a novel opportunity, uh, particularly more obscure stuff. So I, I like obscure stuff. So hence the Antarctic appeal to me. And when I went to Ghana, that was part of Rally, mm. uh, Rally International. And, you know, most people when they sign up for Rally want to go to Chile because that's where everybody goes. Prince Harry went to Chile. Everybody wants to go to Chile. I did not put Chile down on the list. I put Ghana and I think Mongolia and some other strange place. So, of course, I ended up going to Ghana because very few other people would have put themselves down for Ghana. So uh, for me, that was what was more attractive was, oh, that sounds different and interesting. That piques my interest. So I think that's kind of what tempts me to go to places. You know, it's an opportunity arises and I go, yes. That sounds like it could be challenging. I probably should do that. Um, <laughs> and off I go. Yeah, well, that's interesting because what you're saying is the trips you choose are more about doing something specific as opposed to just going and looking at things or being a tourist. Correct. I guess. Yes, yes. I mean, yeah, so Ghana was about exploring. I'd thought about maybe doing a voluntary service overseas, but that was a two-year commitment and that that frightened me a little bit. I thought, well, what if I don't like it? Whereas Rally was a three-month commitment. Mm. Uh, so I was going as a, as a project manager and I thought, well, if I don't like it, at least it's only three months. And then got sucked into this travelling through West Africa on public transport adventure afterwards, which was completely bonkers. And my trip to New Zealand and Australia was, I'd, I'd always promised myself Australia. New Zealand, I've been to a lot, 
But the trip to New Zealand and Australia was about escaping. I'd had a terrible 2012 and I just had to go. So, that yeah, that was the reason it wasn't I feel I must go and travel to somewhere. I was, you know, Ghana, Ghana was about curiosity, hence the, the book's called The Curious Explorer. And my trip to Australia and New Zealand was about me escaping. I was, I was never coming back. I was going to emigrate. <laughs> And that's The Escaping Explorer. So that's my third book. So, yeah, I have reasons for going which aren't just the, oh, I want to go and see that place. That's so funny because I went backpacking in Australia and New Zealand, fully intending to come home. And on the way home, I met a man, as you do, and uh, ended up staying for 11 years. (laughs) Wish I'd met a man in Australia. Do you know, I would really happily have stayed in Australia. But at my age, it was pretty impossible to... Oh, with the points. Point yeah, system. points. And so unless I had £800,000 to buy my own business um, or, <laughs> yeah. or I found myself a, an Australian who took my fancy. Yeah, I was I was a bit stymied. It was more likely that I was going to get into New Zealand, but uh, even that proved too difficult. difficult. Yeah, well, it's very interesting. And I mean, you said that I had a terrible time that year and I just had to go. And I guess that's something that I also think is so important about travel. I've done the same. It's again it's the getting away gives you perspective instead of sitting in your memories and your difficult thoughts you can escape to to do that so I'm completely with you there it's very much and and a way to change your mindset by physically changing your scene I guess Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I came back, I hadn't got any of the answers, but I felt a lot better about everything by the time <laughs> I came back. And it was great because of the internet these days, I was sustained by writing my blog. So I was staying in touch with people and that made me view where I was in much more detail. So it made me look at places and research places so I could write a proper travel blog for people. And that was lovely because I, I do like writing and I like entertaining my friends. So it was a really lovely way to travel around in a camper van you just sort of decide where you're going tomorrow if you like it where you are you just stay and you just go and oh it was just a wonderful escape of not again not having any uh you know rigid I must go to work today every day just melded into another and you just went where where the wind blew you that day or however you felt you want whatever you wanted to do it was marvellous Yes, we all need those periods. So this is the books and travel show. So apart from your own book, what are a few that you recommend either about Antarctica or wider travel books you love? Right. So in terms of the Antarctic, I obviously read quite a lot before I went because I suddenly realised I probably should uh, read up where I was, where I was going. Uh, so there's a marvellous book. So there was one by Diane Preston called A First Rate Tragedy. And that that looked at the Scott expedition to the South Pole and how it failed versus the Norwegian team. That was a brilliant book. So that sort of explained the build up to them going to the South Pole and all the little mini adventures they did. It's a marvellous book. And of course, I have to mention Robert Swan's book. So Robert Swan and Roger Mears uh, wrote a book called In the Footsteps of Scott, which was they were recreating uh, the exact route that Scott took. And it's just really fascinating because it's a lot more about uh, the people dynamics and how the team got on with each other. And then there's fascinating appendices about the physiology of being an adventure in the Antarctic and how many calories you need to eat and the, the impact it has on your body. So fascinating for me. Mm. Um, 
And of course, Ernest Shackleton, I just is just one of my all-time heroes, and his tale of the endurance and how he managed to return everybody without loss of life is just beyond amazing. But a rather obscure book about that is a book called Mrs. Chippy's Last Expedition, 1914 <laughs> to 1915, by Caroline Alexander. And it's written from the perspective of the ship's cat. And it's beautiful. It's such a gorgeous book. And the ending is really, really sad. So you need tissues for the ending. Of it. But I just love that book. It was just so quirky and, and different. So that's those are my favourite Antarctic books. And then I just like, I do like witty writers. So obviously Bill Bryson can't go wrong. I really loved his The Lost Continent, where he travels around small town America. And he really reveals... Uh, a different side to America than the one that we all think of New York and the Grand Canyon and Las Vegas. He's going through the Rust Belt and talking about the poverty and the, the you know, the, the really difficult life that people in middle America quite often have. So I found that fascinating. Tony Hawk's Round Island with a Fridge. Love that book. Very funny. So Tony Hawk's is a very funny comedian. And I particularly liked it because I knew Tony Hawk's from when I was at university. He used to come into the Pheasant and Firkin and play the piano quite regularly. So I have that little affiliation with him. Oh, and then the, the last year I read The Salt Path by Raina Wynne. Uh, yes. She does the, yeah. did the coastal path. So again, that's quite a remarkable tale. And I was particularly attracted to it because I was going down to the Isle of Purbeck last summer and I was doing some of the coastal path. So it had a nice alignment for me, but clearly I did it in a lot more luxury than her and her husband did. <laughs> Fantastic. So where can people find you and your book and everything you do online? Well, I have a website for my book because I've got a business book on there as well. So it's karenesplee.com. So that's got the Impulsive Explorer and uh, How to Create a Profitable Business is my other one. And there's other little bits of interviews and, and press stuff on there. You can find my LinkedIn. And yes, I think those are probably the two key places. And of course, my books are available on Amazon. The audio books just come out now. So you can get it audio, Kindle or, or um, paperback. But I'd far prefer you if you bought it from my website. And you get a signed copy if you buy it from my website. Who couldn't resist such a thing? Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Karen. That was great. Good. Well, thank you very much for having me. Lovely chatting with you. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.